Well, good evening. Um, welcome to City Reform Presbyterian Church. If we haven't had the privilege of, of meeting in person, my name is Naman Cho. I'm one of the assistant pastors here and a uh, privilege of mine to be preaching God's Word today. <clears throat> if you're just joining us uh, or if you've been with us for a while, you know that we've been going through a sermon series through the uh, book of 1 Corinthians here at the evening service where Paul, the Apostle Paul, is addressing the church at Corinth. And he's addressing a whole slew of problems that have been going on inside the church, uh, factions that have been forming disunity. And in various ways, they've been entangled in the, the culture around them, the outside secular culture. So if you're familiar with the parable of the seeds uh, from the Gospels, this is very much like the soil that is the seed is thrown into thorny ground where the, the, the seeds and the plants are growing up entangled uh, with the thorns around them. So, tonight we land on the first half of chapter 6 of the book of 1 Corinthians, so I will read that for us. And as is the tra tradition here, if you would respond with thanks be to God. Let's read <clears throat> 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 1 through 11. When one of you has a grievance against another... Does he dare go to law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more then matters pertaining to this life? So if you have such cases, why do you lay them before those who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes to law against brother, and that before unbelievers? To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? But you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brothers. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ by the Spirit of our God. This is the word of the Lord. And so, even just from the reading of tonight's text, you can sense Paul's tone. It's pretty harsh. He's almost pretty angry at the church. And how did he get to this point? Well, What's been going on uh, in the church of Corinth is that brothers and sisters in Christ in the church at Corinth, uh, whether through various different conflicts or disagreements, have brought it to a point where they couldn't figure it out amongst themselves anymore, but have now have litigated against one another and have brought lawsuits against each other. Not only that, they have brought them brought these lawsuits into the public eye, into magistrates and judges and arbiters who were not in the church. 
That's why you see the unrighteous, the non-Christian judges deeming to settle the case between two brothers in Christ. So you can begin to see why Paul is a little irked. You can see why his tone is the way that it is. So as a preacher, what I would love to do tonight is just walk away and say the purpose of this passage is to say don't sue other brothers and sisters in Christ, the end, right? But it's not so simple. Just as easy as it is for us as modern-day Christians to look at the Ten Commandments, to read through them, and to get to number six, and when we hear God saying, do not murder, we can probably confidently say, I think I'm good on that one. I think for the rest of my lifetime, I'm, I'm square on that one. But what does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not just the physical act of murder, but it what's, what starts in your heart, that when you begin to hate your brother, when you can get to begin to consider him nothing, you are then murdering him in your heart. And so similarly, this is what Paul is saying. Yes, he is bringing up this issue of litigations and lawsuits and suing that's been happening inside the church, but there's a very deeper heart issue going on. How is the church of Christ handling conflict and actually approaching reconciliation with one another. So this passage is very much about conflict resolution and reconciliation. So <clears throat> in a very unpresbyterian fashion, I only have two points tonight. That is to say there is a very real identity crisis happening in the church that Paul is addressing and that there's a very real way in which that identity is restored. So first identity crisis and lastly identity restored. Um, to offer a little bit more context, um, what Paul seems to be addressing or the, some of these litigation cases that have been happening in the church of Corinth seem to be revolving around money, right? And we know this because Paul uses words like defrauding, but you yourselves wrong and defraud, even your own brother. So he's referencing instances that are happening in the church of disagreements with money, somebody owed somebody more, they disagreed on how that happens, and it escalated to a point where uh, they brought it to the courts. And so I bring that up to say that um, what Paul is not saying here is that all of the law and, and lawyers and the court system is bad. That's not what he's saying, but that there is a difference uh, in these types of qualitative cases, so that if you were to ask any law student or lawyer, if you will, what's the difference between a criminal case in a civil case, right? And so a lot of times we see criminal cases, criminal law was designed to protect the state's welfare from actions deemed threatening or harmful to the overall safety of society. So things that are harmful to the, the culture and the society and the world around you, which is why a lot of the times in criminal cases, it's always the state versus fill in the party, right? It's, it's acts done that is harmful to the society around you. Whereas civil cases, are, are cases that happens between two individuals. Civil law focuses on private relationships and disputes between members of a given community or society. And so what Paul seems to be addressing here is that for whatever reason, these civil disputes that happened within the church have now spilled over into the outside, and that's a big no-no. Not all courts and judicial systems are as bad as Paul himself will reference in Romans 13 are our call to submit to our authorities that 
It's for the protection and the good of the people that God has instituted the law. And to focus it a little bit more on Corinth and this culture of law and litigation, there was a very big one at the time. Uh, In a way, litigation and being a lawyer was almost a sport to any Corinthian citizen at the time. Your average citizen was, may have been an amateur lawyer. They prided themselves in knowing what the law was and actually found joy and excitement and, ex- and exhilaration in, in bringing themselves to court, to argue, to debate. In a lot of people's free times, they may have gone down to the courthouse to see what cases were being tried and what debates were being had. In a very real way, being a lawyer or being in these types of cases was a mark of your status. It was usually a mark for for those in a higher social rank to bring shame and and victory upon those who were in a lower social rank. And there was a ton of corruption that existed within the magistrates, the judges, the arbiters, the people who would oversee these cases. A lot of the times, bribes were expected, as we saw in Paul's case outlined in the book of Acts. So in in a lot of different ways, being involved in litigation in Corinth favored the wealthy, it favored the socially elite, and the influential. So even today, we can relate to this. When you think about lawyers and, and law and litigation cases today, and you think, how do I define them? A lot of times they refer to themselves as suits, right? You hire suits. If you've ever seen the TV show, Suits, all about Uh, Corporate lawyers in New York City, it's all about the money, the connections, the status, the power and influence you can have. So we can already begin to see the web that the the Christian Corinthians are being entangled in by being involved in a culture that makes this all a sport. In the previous chapter last week, Pastor Matt preached uh, from chapter 5, and what's famously known as the passage of the incestuous man, of, of bringing up this Uh, this terrible sin that was existing in the Corinthian church, and how church discipline is actually a good thing. The Corinthians were unwilling to call out sin for what it was and to instill discipline within the church, even if it meant for the good of this person or for the good of the whole community. Paul was trying to say discipline is, is a good thing, and if it happens right within the church, grace, and you can see grace happening. You can see the Spirit at work. Don't worry about judging the outside world, but worry about disciplining one another in the grace of Christ. But the irony in, the, in this very next chapter is now the Corinthians are only willing to call out sin, something that they weren't willing to do before. They're only willing to call out sin because it was impeding on their own self-preservation. They thought they had more money coming to them, or they thought they could win this argument, or they thought they could climb this social ladder, and even if it meant doing it to somebody sitting next to them in those pews, that they were going to bring it to the court of law, self-preservation. Whereas before in chapter 5, Paul was addressing sins of omission, things that they were not doing, here Paul is very much addressing sins of commission. The fact that the Corinthian church was abusing this act of discipline, if you will, in the most distorted way. They took this idea of disciplining one another and took it to the polar end of that spectrum for selfish motives to call somebody out to exhibit a higher social status among them. Now things have been brought out and they're, they're airing their dirty laundry in public, if you will. 
And so this is just one of many issues that Paul is addressing throughout this letter. And this is a common theme. And, and what is Paul's main purpose for any issue that he brings up here in the church? If it hasn't been brought up yet, what I will say is what was Paul's main message to the church? We go back to chapter 1, verse 2. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Those who are called to be saints, those who are called to be holy, what does it mean to be holy? Those who are called to be set apart, those who are called to be different than the world around them, but very much so, the Corinthian church was not different than the secular world around them. There was no distinction between the church and the world. So, in a very real way, Corinth, the church, was having an identity crisis. They were forgetting this call to holiness, to be the saints of Jesus Christ. Christians were acting like non-Christians, and there was no <clears throat> distinction between them and the next person outside of them. Verse, if you'll allow me to verse, read verses 2 to 3 again. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? And if the world is to be judged by you, are you incompetent to try trivial cases? Do you not know that we are to judge angels? How much more than matters pertaining to this life? So I'll pause there. There's a little bit of... Um, ambiguity and abstractness in what Paul is trying to say. But what Paul is trying to do is he's trying to remind the church of their higher calling, that one day in the end times when Jesus returns and when all things are renewed, and references brought up in all the way from Daniel chapter 7 and all the way to the end in the book of Revelation, the saints of Christ will join Jesus in judging the world, in judging angels even. Now, there's a lot of... Um, cloudiness as to what exactly that means, but what Paul is trying to emphasize here is that there is a much higher calling that we have as those purchased by Jesus than merely just to settle these tiny, trivial disputes about money here on earth. Something that the outside world would have seen doing every day for fun, for excitement, the church should not involve itself in, but there will come a day where we will judge the world for their acts. We will judge the world for their unrighteousness instead of immersing ourselves in trivial matters that are fleeting, temporary, forgetting the immense future responsibility, this future identity that we have. But not just a future identity, but a present reality, a present identity that they are to have as saints set apart, but instead they bring shame upon themselves. If you read with me in verse 1, when one of you has a grievance against another, does he dare go to the law before the unrighteous instead of the saints? And then jumping down to verse 4. <clears throat> so if you have cases, why do you lay them before those with no standing, who have no standing in the church? I say this to your shame. Can it be that there is no one among you wise enough to settle a dispute between the brothers? But brother goes against... Brother goes to law against brother and that before unbelievers. So Paul, first of all, he's addressing the act themselves. The fact that Christian brothers and sisters in the same community, in the same church, would think about committing these acts of fraud and cheating people out of money or property. Yes, that's, that's heinous, even if we look at the sin that is committed. 
But not only that, how it was handled. Can you imagine going through the process of being angered enough to say, I am going to sue somebody that I go to community group with? Can you think about the thought process that it must have taken for them from, to get to point A to point B? And you can see why Paul is appalled and ashamed, not just the acts that were committed, but the ways in which it was handled. And then take it a step further. Not only did they bring themselves to bring this lawsuit, they brought it before the secular magistrate. They brought it before somebody who had no foundation, the unrighteous, who had no background knowledge as to what proper reconciliation, what proper restoration looks like. As a parent of two kids who are almost six and three, you can imagine the disputes I have to settle in the day-to-day. Just today, I was settling who grabbed the toy first or whose strawberry lemonade this was, or whether you want mommy to drive or you want daddy to drive, right? And so it's very trivial things that I deal with in the day-to-day, and while I want to try to not pull my hair out, I still want to show, exhibit and show grace to my children. But then can you imagine if Sarah and I got into one of the biggest fights of our lives, so angered, that then we would go to our children and say, Isabel Bennett, what should we do here? How do we settle this? It's absurd. You would never think to go to somebody who had no idea what you were thinking, who had no context or background information to who you were, and expect them to settle a conflict this deep, this painful, this scarring. And so Paul is grieving. You can sense his sadness, his righteous anger towards the Corinthian church that they would have let this come to this point, a severe, broken identity into who they were called to be, what they were called from, and even presently who they are now. Now, maybe we think, again, like the Ten Commandments illustration, that I mean, I think I'm still good in this area. I don't think I've ever had the temptation to hire a lawyer and and sue someone in the church. I think I'm good there. But, you know, sadly, we've read headlines recently of the brokenness of the church, capital C. We've read plenty of stories. We've we've heard the gossip and the rumors and, and know and can sit here fully acknowledging that we are not free from that kind of temptation. That there is real brokenness that even happens within the church. So we first have to acknowledge that. But also personally, for you yourself, for me, myself, I ask us, how do we resolve conflicts? How do we resolve conflicts even within the church with other brothers and sisters in Christ? When something comes up, are we tempted to just look it over, just glaze over? It's like, it probably wasn't that big of a deal. I don't want it to turn into some huge thing, so let's, let's let it slide. But then we know that that pattern can only continue. Or if we're in, involved and immersed in a pretty big conflict, do we have a spirit of, of litigation, of wanting to present our case in the most persuadable way to say, no one else can see this objectively, but to, but to side with me? Do we have a spirit of, of winning, of, of superiority? Or is our spirit one 
of speaking truth in love, of considering somebody to be our brother or sister, one that will ultimately lead towards our restoration and the restoration of the other person. A spirit of accountability, of wanting to set up systems and, and, and help us set ourselves up for success, for, for purity, for integrity, of grace, of knowing and understanding who we are in Jesus and how then we relate to other people. What is our spirit when we approach conflict, whether big or small, within the church, City Reformed, within the church, capital C? Do we like to hide behind an, an avatar online on social media and say, man, I can blast whatever I want to. There's, a, there's, a, there's an element of anonymity there that I can do whatever I want. Here in 1 Corinthians 6 and Matthew 18 is very clear. Jesus himself is very clear about how we are to approach one another when we've experienced conflict. That's the one, that's the one thing that I love about <clears throat> our book of church order is that when you read through it and, and all of the, the tedious bylaws and sections and articles on it, it may seem like to your average congregant member, like any other law book, like any other protocol as to what you're supposed to do when you kind of run up into this situation. But the preliminary principle of our book of church order is, when it comes to discipline, is for the sake of restoration for the other person. It's not to win. It's not to debate. It's not to exercise a higher knowledge, a higher orthodoxy, what we believe in, but it really is to pursue that person as Jesus pursues us. And we know this to be real even in our own relationships, whether they're inside or out of the church. Think about <clears throat> the whole range of relationships that you have. And you know, the reality is that the closer you get to intimacy with somebody, the more true is that there is no winning, quote unquote, a fight. Right? So when you're, when you're, let's say you're on the debate team and, and the purpose of, for you is to win that argument. Sure, winning is great and it, it, it's, it's actually a positive. But let's say that that spectrum of relationship moves a, closer, moves a little bit closer in, whether it's your classmate, your roommate, your coworker. Move that in a little bit further. It's, it's your neighbor, your next door neighbor who you see every day. And then you, it's extended family, friends. And then you get to your spouse your children, your parents, when you get into an argument and you're there, maybe screaming at each other, maybe saying things very loudly and enthusiastically, at the end of the day, who really wins that argument? Is it really for the sake of, aha, I've proven my case. Now you have to at least give me this win. And most of the time we, we sit there at the end of the day thinking that was a very lose-lose. There's no winning in this conflict the closer and closer you get into intimacy with that person. So we see this identity that has very severely been broken and compromised and distorted. So how is Paul exhorting us to that identity being restored? Take a look with me in verse 7. <clears throat> To have lawsuits at all with one another is already a defeat. There is that lose-lose again. Is already a defeat for you. Why not rather suffer wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? 
I'll pause there. Might be a little tricky to see the gospel connection here. But Paul is exhorting the church. It would have been better for you to just absorb the, absorb the loss, absorb this fraud that you have been uh, a victim to. But absorbing the cost of a crime only works if we have nothing else to lose. If, if we don't feel entitled to something, if we don't feel like, well, that was my money to begin with, that was my property to begin with, so I'm going to argue my case here. But if we feel like we have nothing left to lose, we can see Paul's argument here of just absorbing that cost rather than having gone through the debauchery that was even the, the terrible witness that the Corinthian church was being to the outside world. The Corinthians couldn't just let the fraud slide, even if it was from another brother in Christ. They felt the need to recover what was lost because they felt so entitled to it. But if they understood their identity as sinners, as somebody who had nothing left to boast in, who had nothing to offer, no honor, no status, no privilege, they would have seen one who had all the honor, all the status, all the privilege, all the power in the universe, who was actually in a very real and cosmic way, defrauded, wronged, mocked, humiliated, shamed, beaten, pierced, and killed in our stead. The only one who had the right in a divine courtroom to plead his case, but chose to remain silent. The only person in the history of the world who had the chance to settle the score, but decided to say nothing. What Paul is trying to do here, it, was be- it would have been better for you to absorb this cross that you, were, that you were to reflect on the person and the work of Jesus Christ than to get to where you are now. And in doing so, we would have been given a clean state, an infinite inheritance, an everlasting assurance to say that no matter what conflicts, no matter what pains and hurts that I experience in this world, not to minimize it, but to say all of that falls secondary to what Jesus has done for me. This is what Paul is exhorting the church in Corinth to do. And then lastly, starting in the second half of verse 10. Um, sorry, verse, uh, verse 9. Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This may have seemed pretty obvious. This, this would have been theology 101 for Corinth, that none of these people described would inherit the kingdom of God. Yes, we can understand that. But, his very next line, and such were some of you. Paul is calling to mind the very depth and reality of their sin, but he doesn't leave them there. His very next sentence after that is, but, but what? But God, but you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. The temptation here is thinking, we have a leg up. I can think of a laundry list of people that I think I'm better than, that I think I have this opportunity to exhibit my own hierarchy or superiority over them. And maybe that was a temptation for the church at Corinth to say, I I can win this case. 
I can get my money back. I can, I can get what's coming to me. But instead, we lose the sight that we have been identified as those who are sexually immoral, the idolaters, the adulterers, the men who practice homosexuality, the thieves, the greedy, the drunkards, the revilers, the swindlers, as heinous as we think those crimes are, that same heinous of, heinousness of sin exists in our very own heart. But it was God who came and made a difference. But God washed you, but God sanctified you, but God justified you by the Spirit of God. So we can't answer this call to be holy. We can't answer this, this main message for Paul to be set apart, apart from the Holy Spirit. So how do we apply this even as modern-day Christians? Well, as I mentioned before, Matthew 18 is a very, very clear and helpful way to approach conflict. You know, it's not easy. I myself personally am non-confrontational. I, I hate to bring up whether big or small, you know, pains and hurts. I'd rather just glaze over them, pretend like it never happened so that we can maintain this equilibrium that we have established here. But we know that at the end of the day, it, it's still there. It still eats at us. And so Matthew 18 is, is not a means for us to, to call out things left and right, but it's a, a way for us in which we pursue one another, that we as men and women, as human beings, acknowledge the fact that one day we are going to get into some kind of spat with somebody. And when that happens, not if, when that happens, how are we to love them and how are we to approach them in grace? And lastly, is while we do that, seek reconciliation as a means of restoration not as a means of winning, of shame. Seek rec reconciliation as a means of sacrificial love, not selfish entitlement. That the more we reflect on who exactly Jesus is and what he's done for us, the only option we have left is to move towards others in the same way that God moves towards us. Amen. Let's pray together.